Power buries our dreams under a pile of lies. Power hates to see hope shining in our eyes. When power reigns and plays its games, power kills the strongest wills. But someone has to cross the River Jordan. Find a way to save the day Let this be the hour To speak truth to power Hi everybody, I'm Charles Ortlam. Welcome to my weekly show, Truth to Power. That was Chris Davidson singing Truth to Power, a song I wrote with him. Chris is a British singer-songwriter who was discovered by Freddie Mercury's manager. You can find that song and all the other songs I've written with him on iTunes, Spotify, and all the streaming services. Truth to Power is also the title of my book, which is a history of the AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome epidemic, and my newspaper, New York Native, which I ran from 1980 until we went out of business in 1997. On my show, I explore a lot of the unresolved stories we covered about the politics and science of AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome. And if you think these issues only affect a tiny minority of people, please stay tuned because you have some surprises coming. This is Dr. Mary Chamberlain, and I'm here with Dr. Mary Guinan at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta, Georgia. Today is Tuesday, May 3rd, 2016. I'm interviewing Dr. Guinan as part of a project to document CDC's early response to the AIDS epidemic. Dr. Guinan, do I have your permission to interview you and to record this interview? Yes. Mary, you, you've worked in a variety of roles at CDC. You began your CDC career as an Epidemic Intelligence Service Officer or EIS Officer from 1974 to 76. Ten years later, you were appointed CDC's Associate Director for Science and served in that capacity for four years, from 1986 to 1990. Much of your early career at CDC was focused on sexually transmitted diseases and AIDS, which we'll discuss in some detail. That is an opening of an interview done with one of the early AIDS scientists, Mary Guinan, for the CDC. The CDC is very proud of their AIDS accomplishments, but they shouldn't be. Most of today's show focuses on how the CDC's Mary Guinan's gay VD obsession blinded her to the real AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome epidemic and made her one of the key architects and supporters of what I call the HIV Ponzi scheme. But first, I need to set the stage by giving you some context and talking about something that happened in Florida in the early days of AIDS. I need to tell you the story of an amazing CDC employee named Gus Sermos. On April 21, 1986, my newspaper, The New York Native, published one of its most revealing pieces on the real nature of the fake epidemiology that the CDC was then doing on AIDS and the same kind of epidemiology they would eventually do on chronic fatigue syndrome. I was so impressed with Fetner's early book on the AIDS epidemic that I asked her to report for us. Her historically important piece, called A Place to Die and a Drink of Water, asked, quote, why the CDC was studying AIDS in Belle Glade 
when they already decided to ignore the facts, end quote. The CDC investigated the epidemic in a small, poverty-stricken Florida community in order to put to rest the suspicion that AIDS was spread in ways that the CDC had not informed the public about. Fetner described the investigation in a brutal, uncompromising manner. Quote, in lockstep with local health authorities, the CDC is busy predetermining exactly the results it will find in the four-month epidemiological survey currently underway. This is Cosmetics, a public relations initiative to rescue the town's reputation while furthering the CDC's control over the shaping of the epidemic. Epidemiology, it isn't. Thereafter, sexual and drug use transmission and any evidence of an unusual cofactor will be sidestepped, end quote. According to Fetner, what the CDC didn't like was too many non-identifiable risk cases of AIDS, which threatened their prevailing paradigm. The CDC wouldn't believe people who said they did not fit into the official gay and drug-taking risk groups. Darlene Lee, the chief nursing officer at a clinic in Belle Glade, made fun of the CDC's sex and drug presumptions to Fetner. She said, quote, there's something about their lifestyles that they're hiding. You keep getting that. They're all closet homosexuals are shooting up, she said sarcastically. We have 25 people right now who are in their 50s and 60s. Nowhere else are they seeing these 50 and 60 year olds and saying, sure, they're turning tricks on the side, end quote. Fetner reported, quote, when the CDC surveyed 250 people from the poor southwest neighborhood of Belle Glade, the overall rate was 8% positive. Belle Glade proper was 11% positive in the CDC pilot study, and 60% of all the positives had no risk factors. What a high percentage of the patients did have, according to Fetner, was a significant percentage of insect-borne viruses. Mark Whiteside, a physician who treated patients in Belle Glade, told Fetner, it's incredible that we should still be arguing about no identifiable risk cases. The disease is not explained by heterosexual transmission in the no identifiable risk patients, none of whom have had sex with members of so-called high risk groups. We're seeing non-characteristic disease and in general, it's not explained by heterosexual transmission. For example, I have a 56-year-old woman who has been married for 27 years to her 77-year-old husband. He's healthy, exonerative for HTLV3 or HIV. They've had no outside sexual contact, none, zero, and she now has AIDS manifested by disseminated histoplasmosis. Her only chance for a risk is a blood transfusion in 1981. But Fetner reported they tracked all the donors and they were negative for the virus. Interestingly, Whiteside told Fetner, quote, she lives in the same apartment as two other AIDS cases, including one of our original no identifiable risk cases, a 30-year-old who had fewer than 10 lifetime sexual partners and had lived with a woman for seven years, and the woman is still healthy. He's dead. The healthcare workers who were seeing inconvenient things the CDC didn't want people to know about were treated in the way most people were when they came in contact with any of the abnormal science of the epidemic. The nurse, Darlene Lee, said, quote, everything is fine as long as you don't make waves. You do as you're told, and as long as you comply with everything they want, it's okay. But when you're a little bit independent or start asking questions, or God forbid you do something on your own and try to help these people, 
Whiteside and his colleague, according to Fetner, were perceived by the CDC as an annoyance, objects of ridicule because of their insistence that more is going on in Belglade than is explained by the CDC party line. The two physicians had done a door-to-door -door survey and came up with 9% positive for HTLV3 or HIV, and most did not have an identifiable risk factor. In her native piece on Belglade, Fetner also reported the shocking story of Gus Sermos, who had been a CDC surveillance officer for two and a half years in Florida. When Sermos started to raise some serious questions about what was going on in the CDC's AIDS efforts in Florida, it inspired an investigative series of articles in the Miami Herald, and he was punished by being transferred back to a temporary assignment at the CDC's headquarters in Atlanta in what appeared to be a humiliating demotion. Sermos had suggested that CDC AIDS funds were not being properly used. He told Fetner that while on the job in Florida, he had, quote, uncovered fraud and mismanagement, cavalier attitudes on the part of the CDC, and general lying and cheating, end quote. He told Fetner, quote, they hired me to do surveillance but I found out that wasn't what they wanted at all. They didn't want to know anything about what's going on. CDC AIDS officials Kern or Jaffe came down and all they wanted to talk about is fishing, not AIDS. When I started in Florida, I had one supervisor. Then there were two, then three. This raft of people doing nothing but waiting for my reports to come in, end quote. But those Sermos reports were not appreciated. According to Fetner, he said it was like, quote, I was digging manure and putting it on their plates, end quote. He told her, quote, 90% of what they're doing up in Atlanta is public relations. For AIDS, there are four people in the field and 40 in Atlanta. If all they're doing with AIDS is lying about it, creating subterfuge, then why not disband them, end quote. He described the scientists working on AIDS with Kern and Jaffe in Atlanta as, quote, a bunch of kids right out of medical school because it's politically so unhealthy to get involved with the CDC AIDS task force that older doctors with experience don't want anything to do with it, end quote. One of the epidemiologically embarrassing things that Sermos uncovered in his surveillance was the presence of older people in Florida who had AIDS without risk factors, which was clearly a threat to the CDC's AIDS paradigm. Sermos was accused of not asking strong enough questions to prove that the people really did belong in the CDC's politically crafted risk groups. He told Fetner, quote, I'll tell you the truth, in my wildest dreams, I would never have thought they'd get away with what those guys have gotten away with. Basically, it's like an old vaudeville show that's been running too long. I can't believe that house of cards in Atlanta can just stand up and take all the win. But they are totally impervious to anything. If you say something disagreeable, you're either unpatriotic or you're a kook. I'm like a citizen who sees a robber running out of the store and calls the cops and the police arrest you and lock you up for reporting a crime. I wasn't going to be a whore for them. I felt like I was a guard at Auschwitz, a traitor. But they're traitors to their profession. And James Curran, head of the CDC's task force on AIDS, is not a scientist by any definition. He should be selling cars like his father, end quote. What is so uncanny about Sermus's story is that his description of the CDC's behavior 
in the investigation of AIDS would be echoed in everything the CDC eventually did in its fake investigation of chronic fatigue syndrome. The fact that the CDC was able to behave this way for three decades shows that powerful institutional forces were keeping Cermis's so-called house of cards safely in place. It may have seemed like a vaudeville act, but we have to remind ourselves that there were those in Germany who didn't think the Nazi leaders would amount to much because they resembled clowns. What made these Sermos revelations so historically important was that for the first time, word was publicly coming from an insider that there was something rotten in Denmark. People on the outside with growing doubts about the integrity of the CDC and its story about AIDS were not crazy. Everything about what happened to him lends support to the notion that what could be called totalitarian or abnormal science had already become the official culture of AIDS. The CDC didn't want to know what was really going on. Or they did know all too well and they didn't want the public to know the truth. To borrow a notion from Hannah Arendt, they had manufactured a false epidemiological image of what was going on and used powerful public relations resources to make it the conventional wisdom for America and the rest of the world. An honest, courageous man warned the world from inside the belly of an authoritarian beast that public health had turned itself into something evil. When Gus Sermos referred to Auschwitz, he was being downright prophetic. I was recruited back to CDC by Paul Wiesner, who was head of the Venereal Disease Control Division. At that time, there was a big division between the Epidemic Intelligence Service and sexually transmitted disease, the Venereal Disease mm -hmm. Control Division. Nobody wanted to work at the Venereal Disease Control Division. But uh, I was recruited back, and I became their herpes expert. And uh, the media seemed to love this idea of a woman speaking about sexually transmitted diseases so that I was... On, uh, I was called on to talk to various uh, shows, beyond various shows, and they always turned out, from my point of view, to be a disaster. So I decided that I didn't want to really do that anymore. But uh, the tabloids called me Dr. Herpes, so that's how I became Dr. Herpes. Well, so let's let's start to get into the area of early HIV-AIDS, obviously not call that in the beginning. How did you first learn about the, the cases of pneumocystis carinii pneumonia, or PCP, that were detected uh, among homosexual men? You played a role in that very first uh, June 1981 MMWR publication, which, which first described these cases, correct? Yes. Um, Actually, the Venereal Disease Control Division, the physicians in that unit, knew something was going on before we got the, the information from Dr. Gottlieb in Los Angeles. We'd heard, we would get calls from people saying, is there something new? We have gay men who seem they're in, dying, and we don't understand. Is there some new disease or something I don't know about? And we'd get calls from... New York or California, and but we could never get all of the information. Uh, many of the people wanted to publish in medical journals and not give the information to CDC, but we knew there was something going on. We were very worried about it because it, people were dying. 
people were dying. I can remember that um, Harold Jaffe and Jim Curran and I, uh, who worked there, we went to see Paul Wiesner, and we said to him, something terrible is happening. And this we, is all pre that yeah, gene at 1980, one We think it's sexually transmitted because it seems to be mm -hmm. in gay men, but people are dying. Before I begin the Mary Guinan story and explain her role in creating the mess that is the chronic fatigue syndrome epidemic with all of its totally fake mystery, I have to note the way she talks about the venereal division of the Centers for Disease Control. Sounds like a bottom-of-the-barrel place for losers, right? Well, those are the losers who ended up crafting the epidemiological paradigm of AIDS that I also refer to as the HIV Ponzi scheme. Okay, here's the Mary Guinan story, which is excerpted from a section of my book called The Four Doctors of the Chronic Fatigue Syndrome Apocalypse. Historians who want to trace the series of missteps that led to the HHV6 pandemic and what I call Holocaust II may benefit from taking a close look at Mary Guinan, a little-known researcher at the CDC who played a curious role in both the supposedly separate AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome epidemics. Let me say that again, supposedly separate AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome epidemics. Her surprising inability to see an obvious link between the two syndromes may be one of the important seeds of the whole HHV 678 disaster, or what I call the 50 shades of AIDS epidemic. Mary Guinan is mentioned in both the Schultz history of the early AIDS epidemic and the band played on, and Hillary Johnson's Osler's Web, the definitive journalistic account of the CDC's bungling of the epidemic of facetiously labeled chronic fatigue syndrome. According to Schultz, Mary Guinan was the person who sent James Curran the first ill-fated report on the first cases of what would be eventually called AIDS in homosexuals. And then uh, we finally got uh, from Dr. Gottlieb, he had he was an immunologist, and he recognized the immune deficiency mm -hmm. he was seeing in these men. There's five men, two of whom had died. And he sent um, the publication into the CDC, but you had to send it to a certain place in the CDC where there was expertise in that disease. And um, since it was a new, th new disease, or at least we thought it was, um, they sent it to me because all of the men had cytomegalovirus infection, which is a herpes virus. So I was Dr. Herpes. So I reviewed the, uh, the article and sent it to, uh, Jim Curran, who was my boss. And, uh, it was pretty frightening. And he wrote on it. And he sent it back to me, and he said, hot stuff. Now, I understand there was a little bit of internal debate about how to phrase the title of that June 1981 MMWR. Can oh, yes, Can you elaborate was. a little bit on that saga? Well, they, I wanted to put pneumocystis pneumonia in homosexual men in Los Angeles, pneumocystis pneumonia. But... Um, it was cut out. The homosexual men were cut out. Well, the title really didn't mean anything. 
pneumocystis pneumonia was a disease that we saw in immunosuppressed patients. So who would read this article by looking at the title? But um, it was not put in the title, but finally homosexual men was put in. It was the first time that the CDC had ever put the word homosexual in, a, in an MMWR. As I have said on numerous occasions, epidemics never have a second chance to make a first impression. And the first impression for these bottom-of-the-barrel venereal disease scientists was the epidemic was gay, gay, gay. With fellow VD chasers Harold Jaffe and James Curran, Mary Guinan shared the CDC AIDS Task Force Hoochie Coochie Preoccupation with Venereal Diseases Epidemiology. She helped impose the CDC heterosexist venereal groupthink on the emerging data of what would eventually be gayified epidemiologically into gay-related immunodeficiency, or GRID. Ironically, considering what turned out to be the role of HHV 6, 7, and 8 in AIDS, Schultz reported that in 1981, quote, on a hunch, Guinan called a drug company that manufactured medicine for severe herpes infections. They told her about a New York City doctor who had been seeing dreadful herpes infections in gay men, unquote. Schultz wrote that, quote, Guinan was shaken by her investigation. She was accustomed to dealing with venereal diseases, ailments for which you receive an injection and are cured. This was different. She couldn't get the idea out of her head. There's something out there that's killing people. That was when Mary Guinan hoped against hope that they would find something environmental to link these cases together. God help us, she thought, if there's a new contagion spreading such death." Unquote. One way that God certainly wasn't helping was by having a VD-obsessed doctor and her colleagues trying to comprehend a pandemic that wasn't, strictly speaking, venereal. Now, so the MMWR comes out. What was the reaction from the medical, the public health community? Did you start to hear about cases? Did it sort of trigger phones ringing? Or? It, was, it was. It was phones kept we, we couldn't keep up with the phones. We were inundated with phone calls from people saying, I have somebody with this, I know someone, I have, and I have this notebook where I just wrote, each time I wrote, there's a new case of this, and maybe, maybe there is a case, and just put the particulars on and took the name of the doctor so I could get back to him to see what was happening. And, um, and then, we needed to start looking at the cases. And so uh, we was sent to, there was a, um, a task force organized. Mm -hmm. But first it was just a few of us in the STD division because we were dealing with that. But we had to go and, and review the medical um, charts of, of, of the patients and if they were alive to interview them to try and find out what their exposures might have been. And um, it was very difficult because for those with pneumocystis pneumonia, they died very quickly. Uh, but uh, we did have a number, and I went to New York, and I spent a great deal of time in New York uh, looking at patients that had been reported by New York physicians and trying to find them first of all, then uh, interview them. And uh, we had this 
huge uh, interview form that we had devised because we really didn't mm -hmm. know what it was and mm -hmm. and and so that it was about 35 pages I think of questions of every kind of question because we had no idea and uh, and interviewed people asking them what their exposures were what their drugs were uh, imagine someone coming to, saying I'm from the government and I want to know all about your sex life and uh, what drugs you're using especially the illegal drugs uh, but many of the patients were very cooperative even though they were on their deathbeds they would tell you everything that they could because they said it might not help me but it might help others um, so finally a number of us had done those gone out and mm -hmm. interviewed people and we all came back and brought our data together and then developed the hypothesis that it was sexually transmitted and uh, at least not only sexually transmitted but sexually transmitted their venereal disease obsession with gays could not see that so-called AIDS was just the tip of an iceberg of illnesses that were multi-systemic. In Schiltz's account of Guinan, seeing the epidemic through gay-obsessed lenses was a given. He wrote about one of her days in 1981, quote, It had been another typical day of gay cancer studies for Mary Guinan. She had wakened at 6 a.m. to breakfast with gay doctors and community leaders and asked again and again, What's new in the community? What new element might have sparked this catastrophe? It was just gay, gay, gay 24-7 for the AIDS task force. In many ways, they were chasing their own gay-obsessed tales. They were doing the pseudoscience and pseudoepidemiology of gay garbage in and gay garbage out. They simply couldn't wash the gay out of their hair. It was one of those times when every gay person should have checked to see whether they still had their wallets. Someone was about to sell them a gay epidemiological bridge. Now I want to, I want to take you back a little bit, because um, you mentioned that you and others, such as Jim Kern and, and Harold Jaffe, were initially working in the uh, in CDC's venereal disease control division, and uh, very early on, uh, so this new disease is coming up, cases, uh, there's a need to investigate, but this disease, whatever it is, is not part of the formal mandate of, of the Venereal Disease Division uh, at CDC. How did you work around that? Uh, what role did Paul Wiesner, the division director, play? Because there were no funds. How, how did you pull that together? It was extremely difficult, and was Paul Wiesner provided the funding uh, from his uh, budget, but there was no budget for years for this disease. and. So we were very worried about money and trying going to interview people cost money. The plane fares and hotels and trying to get the information and back was very expensive. But Paul Wiesner provided that. He was one of the unsung heroes of that. He really uh, provided, he said, my staff is telling me this is a terrible disease is happening. He listened to us, which was wonderful. And then he talked with Dr. Fage, who was um, the director, and they formed the large task force. Um, and you were part of the task force from the go-get. Yes. 
As Schiltz sympathetically presents Guinan, he inadvertently nails the whole CDC psychological and sociological bias problem. Quote, Guinan felt helpless and frightened. This was the meanest disease she had ever encountered. She strained to consider every possible nuance of these people's lives. Unquote. What she really meant was gay nuances of gay lives. Too bad she was not obsessed with the nuances of the disease itself. She might have found her way into the chronic fatigue syndrome epidemic that was also happening all around her. It is supremely ironic that Schultz wrote, quote, the CDC, she knew, needed to work every hypothesis imaginable into the case control study, unquote. Every hypothesis imaginable? Really? Not by a long shot. How about the hypothesis that these cases were just the extreme version of the chronic fatigue syndrome cases that the CDC had been informed about, the ungay cases? And I don't mean the small number of heterosexuals who either tested positive for the so-called AIDS virus or had the most extreme opportunistic infections. The process of identifying the emergence of the epidemic in non-gay drug users, as described in Schultz's book, makes it clear how gay-centric the thinking of the pioneers of the AIDS epidemiological paradigm were. Quote, at the CDC, there was a reluctance to believe that intravenous drug users might be wrapped into the epidemic, and the New York physicians also seemed obsessed with the gay angle, Guinan thought. He said he's not homosexual, but he must be, doctors would confide in her, unquote. Obsessed with the gay angle? Obsessed with the gay angle? Well, that was a pot calls kettle black moment for the ages. Everybody was becoming an expert on gayness in those days. It reminds me of how in Nazi Germany, Nazi doctors became experts on Jewish health. I suggest you read James Glass's Life Unworthy of Life if you want to know what I mean by that. Given the reluctance to even see connections in those cases of non-gay drug-using outcasts, it should come as no surprise when years later anyone who saw the obvious connections between the epidemics of AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome was treated like they were strictly out to lunch. You made a, a, a reference a little while ago to another one of the, the early major activities that CDC did uh, to try and learn more about the, the new disease, and this was doing a case control study of homosexual men, and that uh, started in the fall of 1981, so just a few months after that first MMWR came out. So, uh, so the gay men with the diseases are the cases, and they were going to be compared to other gay men who were similar to them, but apparently healthy, the so-called controls. So you were part of a team that interviewed cases and controls in, in San Francisco. Can you talk a little bit about the mechanics of, of how all that worked? Where did you interview the men? What types of questions did you ask? Specimens you collected? Well, uh, we had a protocol. Everyone did the same. Uh, it was an incredible cooperative experience because all of the uh, specimens and containers were sent to the local health departments. So somebody in the local health departments then had those. And so I had to go to San Francisco and find a hotel when I Finding a hotel was very difficult because of the uh, federal limit on our hotels, and which was $45 a night. So I had to find a hotel that had a refrigerator because I had to put the specimens in the refrigerator. So it was this really 
rundown hotel in the Tenderloin district of um, San Francisco. It had like a, a a little kitchenette with a bar and and a and and a refrigerator. So and uh, then a public health advisor, Sal from San Francisco Health Department, came with all of the paraphernalia we needed, uh, boxes and labels and syringes and needles and everything I needed to essentially do what he had to do. When we were taking specimens, um, uh, blood specimens, oral swabs, rectal swabs. So um, that was the protocol. Okay. And, uh, but there was several, there were several different controls that were, and we actually had five controls, not two controls because when we started because we had uh, controls, uh, homosexual men, mm -hmm. age and city matched, uh, who were from a sexually transmitted diseases clinic. Mm -hmm. Then we had those from private sector. So like a an age match, a, a gay man who went to a private doctor. Then we had a friend a friend control of the case yeah, of okay. the case but then someone insisted a statistician insisted that we had to have a heterosexual control well we in STD say this is ridiculous we do not want we do it will it has no relevance in this study we're st studying homosexual mm -hmm. men and uh, but he insisted that we do that and it wouldn't pass the Institutional Review Board for the Protection of Human Subjects unless we agreed to include a heterosexual uh, control. So we included a heterosexual control. And the public health advisors helped find those controls. They went to doctors, they went to doctors of heterosexual people to find the, the heterosexual controls. And um, so I had to do five interviews, and the same person had to view, interview all of the cases and controls. So you had five people that you had to interview for each, page, each patient you had. And it was, you know, two or three hour interview because it was a big, long interview and, um, and so it took up weeks trying to get everything organized and do it. It was, um, so I uh, was very comfortable speaking with the homosexual men. They were actually so helpful in trying to help tell you their stories so it would help find out what the problem was. Very cooperative. And um, I my first time I had to interview a heterosexual man, imagine I'm in this downtown hotel in the Tenderloin District. And men are coming up to your hotel room. And men room. are coming up to my hotel room. And this is the first heterosexual man that I had interviewed. And it was, it was at nighttime and uh, I have all syringes and needles on the, on the counter there. And uh, he, uh, you know, I started asking him questions and uh, telling me and asking him how many sexual partners he had and all the drugs he used and how and uh, and then asked if he would 
you know, allow me to take specimens? And he said, no. The AIDS paradigm was fatefully and messily intertwined with all the psychological baggage of sexual titillation and repulsion. By the way, Hannah Arendt describes a similar phenomenon in the psychology of anti-Semitism. If the CDC was unprepared psychologically to see drug users wrapped into the epidemic, how about all the good, clean, living white heterosexuals with the AIDS-like permutations of the immune system that characterize chronic fatigue syndrome? Couldn't go there. Guinan's San Francisco trip with Harold Jaffe to interview AIDS patients and heterosexual controls also revealed the CDC mindset, quote, the CDC staffers could tell gay from straight controls by the way they reacted to the questions about every aspect of their intimate sexual lives. Heterosexuals seemed offended at queries about the preferred sexual techniques, while gay interviewees chatted endlessly about them, unquote. Oh, those gays, a herd of chatty Cathy's if ever there was one. Given the bias-laden epidemiology that this chattiness was about to imprison the gay community in, one is tempted to say that loose gay lips sank a proverbial legion of gay ships. If one were watching this on a screen in a movie theater, one would want to scream out to the clueless gay interviewees, for heaven's sake, shut up. Guinan was one of the CDC researchers credited by Schiltz with recognizing that hemophiliacs and blood transfusion recipients might ultimately also become victims of gay pneumonia. She also was one of the first to worry about the AIDS infection possibilities of semen depositors. Supposedly, Guinan cast a wide net, quote, no sooner had she convinced the CDC that intravenous drug users were indeed a category of grid cases separate from gay men, then her field of investigations discovered the first reported grid cases among prisoners and prostitutes, unquote. Unfortunately, her epidemiological net wasn't wide enough to catch the concurrent cases of AIDS-like chronic fatigue syndrome. Also, unfortunately for her, she helped create the very consequential epidemiological urban myth of patient zero. She was the first person to come in contact with Gaetan Dugas, the so-called gay typhoid Mary, who the CDC would turn into patient zero, or more appropriately, scapegoat zero of the epidemic, depending on your point of view. He would become an icon for all the venereal gay-centric thinking down at the CDC. One of the most amazing moments in this story, in which a scientist comes face to face with the truth but fails to see what is right before their eyes, Schiltz reports that when Guinan was studying drug users, quote, blood sampling of the intravenous drug users also revealed that although many were infected with cytomegalovirus, the viral strains were all different. This was strong evidence that the herpes virus had not developed some new virulent strain. No single strain emerged, lending further weight to Don Francis's hypothesis that a new virus, not CMV, was at work, unquote. I will have more to say about Don Francis, someone I refer to as the scientist zero of AIDS on a future show. The scientists at the CDC, in retrospect, when they thought they were looking at CMV, were actually eyeballing strains of a then undiscovered virus that would be called HBLV when Gallo scientists supposedly discovered it in 1986. It was subsequently named HHV6. A future show will deal with that cloudy issue. Anyway, in retrospect, it is pretty obvious that the CDC was looking at HHV6, but thinking it was only CMV. 
and those who wanted to see a retrovirus would have been especially predisposed not to see a new DNA virus like HBLV or HHV6. It is interesting and perhaps revealing that Guinan and her colleagues could deal with the fact that the disease or syndrome manifested itself differently in gay men and drug users, presumably for reasons that would ultimately be figured out. But God forbid that anyone would suggest that even though there were differences in the manifestations of chronic fatigue syndrome and AIDS, they were essentially manifestations of the same non-HIV agent and the same pandemic. Distinctions were not turned into differences where drug users and gays were concerned, but where the gays with AIDS and middle-class straights with chronic fatigue syndrome were concerned, every distinction, even the teeniest, tiniest, or most irrelevant kind, was immediately considered a dramatic, how dare you compare these apples and oranges difference. Such bogus thinking would be at the heart of the chronic fatigue syndrome is not AIDS paradigm, which would guide public health through the next three decades. You mentioned about the, the gay men that you were interviewing in San Francisco, uh, and uh, I, I, the sense I have is that, is that obviously they had given their informed consent to participate in the study, but you didn't have any sense of unease uh, on their part. I mean, you were asking a lot of probing, intimate questions, getting a lot of specimens. Uh, you're a U.S. government employee, a woman to boot. And, but they, there was a real willingness on their part to participate? Yes, it was overwhelming. The gay men came and would tell you everything, anything that you asked. And they, they said, it might not help me, but it may help mm -hmm. someone in the future. So I think that was this wonderful spirit. And there was a reporter in San Francisco, Randy Schiltz, who had a column. And he dedicated his column to um, the AIDS uh, epidemic. No other paper wanted to pick it up. Mm. It was one of those things that, like, like the New York Times, wouldn't even put gay men in the in the in their in their newspaper. The so they were so Randy knew many of the patients who volunteered, and so he would call them up after I interviewed them and say, what did she ask you? <laughs> and, you know, it was like, how many sex partners do you have? And, and all of these other... I think there was a critical question that we asked with that, that I think was really important. And one was, we really didn't know what the risk factor was and, mm -hmm. and how many sex partners you had. But if a person was sick for several years, they might not have any sex partners. So how far should we go back to ask? And so what we decided, which was, uh, I think, terribly unusual at the time, we asked for a lifetime number of sex partners. For all her good work, Guinan was eventually rewarded with the position of assistant CDC director. Unfortunately for all the victims of HHV6, what she did do at the CDC didn't have as much impact on the well-being of the world as what she did not do. It was Guinan in 1985 who got a call from Dan Peterson, a former colleague and one of the two doctors who are credited with recognizing an outbreak of the absurdly named chronic fatigue syndrome in their Lake Tahoe practice. According to Hillary Johnson, quote, the two had become friends during a shared stint 
at the University of Utah Hospital in Salt Lake City in 1976, unquote. Also, according to Johnson, quote, Peterson had frequently sought her counsel on different infectious disease cases. He had also struck her as a gifted diagnostician, unquote. Johnson reported that, quote, Guinan listened as her former colleague described his Tahoe patients, her curiosity aroused by the possibility that this ailment, which three recent medical papers had described, was occurring in epidemic form. Previously, researchers had described it as a sporadic illness. She remembered, too, that Atlanta clinician Richard Du Bois had made a presentation to CDC staff on the malady early in 1983, even proposing that the new mono-like syndrome might be a second epidemic of immune dysfunction rising concurrently with AIDS. Did this inspire Mary Guinan to evolve a more complicated epidemiological vision of a variable and multi-systemic epidemic that included both what was called AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome? Not on your life. These first CFS patients were not gay and not drug users. They were from medical practices that could be described as being devoted to folks who ride in the middle and front section of society's bus. Such stark social differences would make it of no consequence or interest that study after study would show one immunological and neurological similarity after another between AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome. Mary Guinan had helped build a paradigm that was so gay and so socially radioactive that the links between AIDS and CFS would be willfully ignored, buried alive by denial, and through a kind of determined public health radio silence, for all intents and purposes, be covered up big time. Ignoring the obvious, Guinan sent the future chronic fatigue syndrome patients of America on one of the greatest medical wild goose chases in history. According to Hillary Johnson, she passed the Peterson cases on to Larry Schoenberger, chief of the CDC's epidemiology within the division of viral and rickettsial diseases. Not surprisingly, Johnson reports that, quote, Schoenberger and his staff of epidemiologists had a mandate to monitor and occasionally investigate outbreaks of viral diseases with the exception of AIDS, which by 1985 had been awarded a separate division and staff and more than half of the federal agency's entire annual research budget. And so, because of Mary Guinan's phone call and her very questionable judgment, chronic fatigue syndrome research headed down exactly the wrong road, or I should say rabbit hole. Had Mary Guinan wisely directed the Lake Tahoe cases in the direction of the CDC's AIDS division back in 1985, there was still a chance that the political and medical apartheid of the chronic fatigue syndrome is not AIDS paradigm might not have been able to fully materialize. But AIDS had been so gayified and turned into such a sexual boogeyman and scarlet letter syndrome that Guinan and everyone else at the CDC couldn't for the life of them admit that average, that is white heterosexual, Americans were coming down with any similar or related form of acquired immunodeficiency. Instead, those people were given the whitewash of a diagnosis of chronic fatigue syndrome. Those good country people, to borrow a term from Flannery O'Connor, 
couldn't in a million years be suffering from something that had at one time or another been called gay cancer, gay plague, gay pneumonia, and gay-related immunodeficiency. After all, they weren't gay. There was this uh, idea that there had to be a woman, a woman's condition that would define AIDS in women. But um, I had done the first um, analysis of the epidemiology of AIDS in women in the United States, and I had just presented it at a meeting of uh, over a thousand cases, and there were no, there was no woman. Specific diagnosis in any of the cases that we had. So um, I was asked at one of the first uh, international AIDS meetings, the first one I think was in uh, Atlanta, a group of women representing, a lesbian woman representing ACT UP, asked me to sign a petition that there would be a, uh, a women specific diagnosis. Uh, for AIDS. And uh, I said, I can't do that. I've just presented a thousand cases and I, there's no evidence. But they were not happy with that. And so I, my refusal to sign this statement, um, I think, made me a target then. Because I was, you, they said, oh, you're supposed to be the one uh, who, who is standing up for women, and you're not doing that. Mary Guinan never mentions that my newspaper, New York Native, reported on AIDS way before Randy Schultz took it seriously. In the early days of the epidemic, I had to convince him that it was a big story. Nor does she note that New York Native was the first paper to argue that the epidemic of AIDS in women was being hidden behind the euphemism of chronic fatigue syndrome. And get this, act up the group that wanted Guinan to admit that there was a woman's condition that would define AIDS in women voted to boycott my newspaper. Go figure that one out, will you? Okay, some of the books I mention on the show today include And the Band Played On by Randy Schultz, which is available on Amazon. Hillary Johnson's book Osler's Web is also found on Amazon. And don't forget to visit Hillary Johnson's new website, oslersweb.com. There you will find a lot of her past reporting, as well as the latest news about the chronic fatigue syndrome epidemic. If you want to know more about HHV6, visit my website, HHV6 University. If you want to know more about Mary Guinan, I suggest you read my book called The Four Doctors of the Chronic Fatigue Syndrome Apocalypse, which is free on my website, charlesortlip.com. That's charlesortleb.com. On charlesortlib.com, you can find all of my books, including Truth to Power, The Definitive History of AIDS and Chronic Fatigue Syndrome. The best way to support my show is to buy a copy of Truth to Power or any of my books on Amazon. On charlesortlib.com, you can also find all of the songs I've written with Chris Davidson. Since this show is a kind of rebirth of the issues raised by my New York City newspaper, I think it is appropriate to end with a song I wrote with Chris, which celebrates a New York City comeback. The song is titled, Hello New York, I'm Back. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, Apple Music, and all the streaming services.